Bookworm Games, episode 57, The Ultimate Work of Art. The game comes full circle by the final chapter, first and last. That's what the wave existence calls itself, and it's what's displayed before the opening movie. Going back and watching that, given what we've learned, it should more or less all make sense now, along with all the foreshadowing and frank obfuscation from the likes of Satan, the Emperor, the Ministry, Graf and Biang, throughout Xenogears. Everyone, except Krellian, should just about be comprehended in its arc. The first and the last is also the biblical formula, of course, and appears in the Gnostic thunder-perfect mind. As I've argued from the start, whatever the intent of the creators, the player would do well to return to those sources too. Xenogears, like any great book, thus teaches us how to read and reread itself, at once presupposing and reinforcing a certain context of language and myth. Like the music box, it both contains its own meaning and opens itself to the interpretation of its listeners. Like the gear, it houses its pilot, the player, and extends our reach and power. Center and circumference, wave and body, alien and familiar, many and one. We'll do our best to round off our look at Xenogears these last couple episodes, but by no means do I pretend to have the first and last word on the matter. The characters take a brief interlude from their dire rescue mission to visit the place where it all started, the point of genesis of life on the planet. Faye takes the lead of explanation. Now that he's become whole, having integrated the separated personalities within himself and accounted for the past lives, histories leading him to this moment, he is well-placed to lay out how the core, detached so Deus could regenerate itself, beginning that long process of separation and multiplication, and now the time has come to knit it all back together. This is where the original mother emerged, whom we saw at the end of the opening sequence, though no beach is in sight this time. She created the emperor and the ministry, as well as bifurcating into Ellie, imprint of the wave existence and its contact, and Miang, guardian and guide of Deus's plan for the artificial humans. That Fei, Ellie, and Miang conserve these memories is due to their analogy to what passes for God. Fei says, just as the wave existence is bound inside of Zohar, the information is affixed to me, so to speak, by some of the power of the wave existence. It's an intriguing alignment of the divine with information, stories, the word, so to speak, or genetic information as the clearest picture yet of that vessel-source dynamic we've observed. Memory, transcending death, embodied generation after generation, is akin to the higher dimensional being incarnated in the world. As that information is transmitted, so the infinite energy longs to return to its source. Only through opposition, conflict, even violence, do we get the meeting and mirroring of self and other without which there is no recognizable story? 
the descent of the wave existence for the purposes of the game effectively the true god occurs through its connection to the ultimate weapon, Deus, the false god. But only through peacemaking and integration, like we saw with Fay and Id and Graf and the bequeathing of the Xenogears itself, does the path home become passable. We see it here in Fay's explanation. We'll see it again at the very end with Krellian in the path of Sephiroth. Visually, the remains of the original mother contained in the core unit recall Cain and his decrepitude, but also Emeralda, and Faye and Ellie themselves in the nanotech tubes. The ambiguity between preservation and healing, generation and stasis, lends the figure a kind of pathos analogous to the effect of seeing the wreckage raining down reflected in her eye at the start of the game even as her hair sweeps ominously behind. She is both Lilith and Eve, the mother and daughter in the captain's locket, and like him, obeys her fateful duty. Aboard a Shevat ship, an awful lot like the one Sophia was piloting, the party discusses tactics next. The ramifications of defeating Deus are mixed. On the one hand, Ellie and the absorbed humans will be saved, along with the planet and potentially many others. But this will mean the departure of the wave of existence, the powering down of the Zohar, and with it all gear and ether abilities. Satan lays out a theory of Deus's psyche as great mother is trying to bring its child back into its womb, absorbing rather than simply destroying. He goes into psychologist mode, speculating on whether this motive might have come from Ellie or somewhere else, but Faye insists that whatever the case, they have to fight back. A strong assertion of individuality over the unconscious collective, of practice over theory. Thematically, these corresponded two alternatives for the player, going ahead and beating the game, though that means the end of the adventure, or continuing to play indefinitely putting off that conclusion. Plot-wise, there is a lot to swallow here, but once we accept the efficiency of nanotechnology, Krellian's contribution to Deus, building on Tara's and Kim's discoveries, and maybe he, not Ellie, is the source of Deus' shift to absorption rather than outright destruction. Well, once we swallow that, the rest follows. We get the return of Omnigear status to our machines, despite the lost anima relics, we get the ability to neutralize the auto-repair invulnerability of Seraph enemies. Like the Yggdrasil replacement, or Fenrir, the revelation of this ship, the Excalibur, comes out of nowhere. It'll be short-lived anyhow. Satan's plan was some surprisingly technical, if characteristically brash input from Bart, is to take out the Merkava cannon and shield by a direct ramming tactic, much like Sophia's, this combines the giant Yggdrasil IV, which used to be the Kislev Imperial capital, the Shevat ship appearing out of nowhere, from the Lady of the Lake, or who knows, stone, and even those rockets from the mass driver facility are going to get used for propulsion. It turns out the Xenogears will use them for something after all. A rad cutscene ensues. 
in which we see the giant district gear plunge its sword prow into the enemy and then get detonated by the Excalibur's cannon, while the ship and its pilots all get away safely. But the power of the explosion does more than take out Makava's gun. The entire thing goes down, a, mis a miscalculation on the dock's part, but it's perfectly in line with what we've seen from Bart's penchant for blowing things up all along. Faye is terrified for Ellie, who's still trapped within. From the center of the downed ark, though, an angelic, organic being rises, Dave's or some emanation thereof, and begins terraforming the land all around, turning it to a lunar wasteland. In his final scene of narration from the chair, Faye tells us this is Deus's final form, converting the whole planet into its weapon. Our plan now, after regrouping at the base on the snow plains, is to go back in, come what may. With that, the spotlight and the swinging cross fade, and for the remainder of the game, we actually get to play. Ellie, having been lost from the party, is also removed as a voice telling the story. But in exchange, the power to recover her and reach the story's end is also handed back to the player. Before we do go on to the final boss, though, there's quite a bit of game left to play, should we choose to explore. Anyone who plays, that is, reads, this far into Disc 2 of Xenogears, I'm sure will indulge in all the side quests available to us. What's less certain, actually, is whether, like me, you'll have trouble actually bringing yourself to conclude the adventure. We regain control of the party, Faye, Satan, and Bart, in a dim bedroom with a blessed save point. The room and music suggest Shavat, but something's happened. In place of futuristic corridors in the sky, we have an underground tunnel, a bear cow from Lahan. Talking to people in the main hall, we learn Shavat was wrecked. Having crash-landed here in the snow, survivors from all over the planet have gathered to await the end. Their mood varies from grim realism about the shortage of supplies and the threat of the foe to prophetic gloom and zeal. But there's also the glee of children sledding and running around in the former tactical command center to lighten the mood. There's plenty of useful tidbits and treasures to uncover. Though it's hard to tell, the path down from the sledding kids continues up a slope, and you can emerge in the former Belvedere atop the palace where Queen Ziffer looks out. She spells out some of the symbolism of the snow falling, covering up everything, just as someone up in Shavat used to speak about all people living under the same blue sky. Clearly, Zephyr regrets the lost time. She can't ignore the mistakes they've made. But with the falling snow, we might recall the Zohar, that fallen star in its snowy cavern which conferred the ultimate power on Fay, the power to change possible events, to change his future, through understanding and coming to terms with his past. Like that other room in Shavat with the fountain and the fish, we might remember the life-giving water locked in snow and ice. Zephyr comes back to the present to ask after that person we rescued from Merkava. A mini-flashback ensues in which we see Ramses still calling himself Trash, 
getting slapped by Satan, who with a pan of the camera reveals the Elements girls there in the Yggdrasil hospital room. The scene of so many romantic disclosures plays host to one more here, as Ramses, for their sake, who believe and see the good in him, resolves to accept the love that has been so close to him all along. He doesn't join the party, though Satan teases that possibility. Faye looks forward to fighting him in sport someday. He and his four admirers abscond into a tranquil blue yonder. In the face of Zephyr's despair, Faye holds out hope that he and Ellie too will be reunited yet. He is resolved on this as his reason to fight, to secure their freedom, to live, to save her, and keep his promise. That mixture of play-fighting, however deferred, and earnestness is new in him, showing Faye has truly worked out his long-standing questions about power and purpose. Zephyr calls it, and true enough when we remember the advent of Xenogears or the fact that this game got completed at all, she calls it a miracle. It looks like this conversation, having restored Zephyr's hope, also opens up some side quests. Down one of the radiating tunnels, we find a dolphin kid embroiled in a family drama. You're not my dad, he says, to none other than Hans, first mate of the Thames. In short order, we get not only the aquatic recapitulation of Faye's deep-seated trust issues with his family, but also yet another heroic demise story, that of the captain of the Thames, who resolved to go down with the ship when it was attacked by seraphs. We're spared a flashback this time. The mate has hope, though. And sure enough, after explaining his family situation with Anna and her son Lance, how he feels sorry for slash protects her, and about the captain's teasing him about seducing a widow, the captain's ghost, Hans sees descending the stairs, becomes the captain in the flesh and peg leg. Men of the sea never say die, he belts out triumphantly, posing. He proceeds to tell Hans of the fabled treasure of the monster-slaying hero of Duneman Isle. Never mind a ship to reach it, he guffaws. The other stepkid, Kana, will play the card game she learned from Queenie, with dolls of your characters as prizes, treasures fabled as any, and right here, nearby, all along. Meanwhile, the captain dispenses advice to the parents and the kids, but he won't detain you with details like how he survived. Lance, in a Freudian slip, calls Hans his dad, so it looks like all will be well. If you beat Kana five times in a row at the card game, she'll stop playing with you. That same dilemma about beating the game or continuing to play, represented in microcosm. Elsewhere in the hall, one of the scholars bemoans the burning of his books, a microcosm of that global conflagration Deus has caused. But as the Diabolos attack of 500 years ago was turned back, so there is cause for hope this time. And the stories live on, told aloud or metaphysically preserved in the introns of the contact and the mother. And if nothing else, these crises have finally united the whole world. The gear shop can upgrade even the Xenogears, though we're better off saving our money for an even more recondite shop. 
and the hefty amount of money gets charged by a waitress nearby if we agree to buy her picotile birds. The colorful things will fly off at once, but they unlock a stepping stone up to the choo-choo storeroom. There we find the best accessories in the game among the grandpa's treasures. The speed shoes, which auto-boost a character for a whole battle in or out of gear, and a Hercules ring, which doubles your experience, so saving you a ton of time in another respect, along with some strong armor. There's also the legendary badges. Whether you collected them all and exchanged them or not, that RPS badge has got to be just about as tough as beating Graf at Raziel's tree. It's another melancholy reminder of Shavat we get in the preserved, bombed-out house from 500 years ago where against all odds, that mirror concealed in the wall is still in one piece, so we can dance. Down in the hangar, a lone weaponsmith will reforge Satan's kishin sword into the Kijin, another word for demon god. He plays on the swords into plowshares line from the prophets, reversing it. And remember that other little blasphemer, Dan, self-mocked his notion of praying to Fay like an idol. He and Midori are ensconced in what looks like Zephyr's old room, each with a different take on what they saw in that moment of transformation out of the carbonite and into id. Dan understands, belatedly, that that monster isn't Fay, and he stammers out his apology and his forgiveness. What we've learned, what Fay mercifully spares him, is that Faye absolutely is that monster, but not just that monster. At any rate, apologies are accepted all around. Midori understands this, too, but she has it a bit backwards. She was scared, but not really scared, she says, and she perceived Faye fighting back within the monster. Well, it was more that he accepted and balanced it within himself, and it was her father's words that reminded him of Ellie at the crucial moment there. Yet here, Satan seemingly has nothing to say to his daughter. They, as if to make amends, returns the ring he found in the flower bed that evening so long ago. It's been invisibly in your inventory all along, and in return, Midori trades another Hercules ring from the Choo Choo tribe. Another treasure hunter in a dead-end tunnel of the ruins will dig further if you trade him some gold, eventually unearthing the jukebox, like that one from the bar. It miraculously still works, among its tunes, the music from Satan's old house. And venturing outside the snowfield hideout, we see that's its name, there's our airship, still there, ready to fly us to Duneman Isle or wherever else we'd like to go before tackling Deus. As per the usual with these old RPGs, the world map has suffered a catastrophic and irreversible change. Disc 1 cities, like Nissan and Bledovic, still remain visible, but are no longer possible to go into. Solaris, of course, crashed even harder than Shavat. But a number of new locations, besides the final dungeon, are opened up. We can revisit the Anima dungeons, Tara's house, and scoop up loot if we need it. Around the forests by Tara's, there's a snail enemy, which drops more speed shoes, the equivalent of those boots the kids in Solaris were all in a tizzy over, so long as you've got the trader card. 
Kislev, with its battle arena, is still smoldering but operational, minus the central admin slash transformer gear. And buy another jukebox, personally rescued from the wildcat in decorated with a faux marble veneer. Big Joe himself is among the survivors here. He's disillusioned by the destruction rained down by God, yet soothed by music from other parts of the game. Diana, the doctor formerly of D-Block, reminisces about meeting you and encourages you on your way. Battling now makes available many gears and monsters from throughout the game. There's some sweet prizes, but unless you're a junior doll completionist, or don't have a trader card and need some speed shoes, or if you have a friend to play with, there's otherwise really no need for this. One other small Easter egg is up at Satan's house, where you can still revisit the music box if you haven't before. And you see there that he, or someone from the more distant past perhaps, has inscribed it with a dedication, celebrating my daughter's birth, may all the dreams, courage, and love in the world be yours. Like the mirror and the children in Shavat, it's a testimony to the power of seemingly fragile things' resilience in dark times. Two longer side quests await, but there's also the Yggdrasil itself to explore. Margie is forward with Bart, who for all his bravado is taken aback by her. She's his cousin after all. She mentions that Choo Choo is missing. In the gear hangar, you can find her standing giant-formed in the place of Ellie's gear. It's an adorable gesture. Mason, at his bar, promises to take up arms again if needs be. And Sigurd, when you go back to take the helm once more, has strong encouragement for you too. Implicit in what they say here is the same tension that Ellie was faced with, whether to save the world or try to save just one person. But in this case, the outcome is literally synonymous, though it's by no means assured. They're going to attempt it anyway. As with Zephyr, Faye reassures the Royal Desert Brothers that he, for one, believes Ellie can still be brought back from her mutation and the world be saved. From a nice reminder of the treasure which cannot be stolen, it's on to Duneman Isle, full of treasures for the taking. The gimmick here is that no gears are allowed, so we have to proceed on foot. You'll want your fastest party, speed shoes on, to face the toughest enemy encounters here. But the first scripted battle is just against a trio of Jawas, Dameri Dunmin. They sing about the land a-changing, for what reason they aren't even sure, and wind up their song with, Go Home. Soon enough, the player and the wave existence alike will return to our respective dimensions. We'll do just that, go home. Not that it explains the impossibility of gear use here, but I like the song. If we were to theorize... Maybe gears aren't allowed because it has something to do with that waterfall of sand dominating the landscape. Or it might be down to the spirit of the dragon, vanquished by the hero with the legendary sword. The story, like the captain of the Thames, reposes in silence on such details. Dispatching those dunemen, and more like them as you wander about, it's our turn to go west side ho, east side yo, looking for treasure. We'll eventually come upon that dragon skeleton, 
which, with some careful platforming, will yield up the Yamato sword pinned in its back. Intriguingly, this is only Satan's second best sword. By the time you reach it, you may well have already won yourself the first. The dead dragon collapses when you pull it free. The name means something like Great Harmony, or it could refer to a historical period or maybe even a battleship. The living black dragons that roam the desert sometimes drop the mumyo, and that literally means darkness, apparently, with some Buddhist shades of ignorance. This is Satan's ultimate weapon. You only get it if you have the traitor card equipped. Taking the dragon out is a matter of preparation and leveling. Ether attacks won't work. They prompt an ether breath counter which wipes out your party. Strong non-elemental combos are your ticket here. You need a power crisis equipped on a party member with HP in the red so as to take the dragon down before it gets a turn to attack. Emeralda is just about as fast as Satan, though Faye might be a little stronger than either of them. But all this is just gratification of curiosity, ultimately. It's an optional challenge. There won't be any further on-foot exploration or boss battles in which to use all this sweet loot anyhow. Perhaps that is the meaning of the flowing sand, bearing you along so you can only grab one or the other treasure at a time. The meaning the time's a-wasting. Waiting for you at the bottom of the drop is a worm like the one Graf had Fae fight back in the Ava Desert. It's easily dispatched this time with elemental combos or ether attacks, and you can always trek back up to get the treasure chest you've missed. The challenge here is mainly about figuring out where to go, whether by following the sandfish jumping or by following a walkthrough. Somewhere along the way, you'll run into another Duneman having some car trouble. Remember Satan's buggy rental all the way back in Dazzle? Help him out on whatever adventure he's just setting out on, and he'll ferry you back to the exit. So much for the captain's tip about Duneman Isle. The counterpart to this quest is the lighthouse, which you've been able to see since disc one, but never to go in before. I can't remember if there are hints that you can explore this area given to you by someone in the snowfield hideout. Maybe the old woman down at the bottom of the staircase talks about her son who explored the seafloor. The lighthouse itself is invitation enough, though, conspicuous among the scattered islands. On approaching it, a party member will mention that the building itself pre-existed its conversion to a lighthouse. Perhaps, due to the recent convulsions of the earth, the base of it now opens to admit you to an elevator, plunging down into the depths. You emerge in the downtown of the ruined city that formed the eerie backdrop of the bridge to the Zeboim facility where you fought Id. The same haunting soundscape plays here, but the surroundings are uncannily familiar to the player in another sense looking more than a, like a contemporary large city than like anything else in the game. Coasting about in your gears among the deserted skyscrapers, Faye suggests you can go in on foot to the handful of doorways where light spills out. In one, there's a bunch of magazines and newspapers scattered around. It's a bodega. It's been cleaned out. These papers give belated information about the newly discovered slave generators. 
They have three attack levels and theoretically a hyper mode beyond that. Articles upstairs detail the Eldridge's Heisenberg engine, a more scientific jargon-laden gesture at explaining the Zohar modifier. And there's even a puff piece about none other than Big Joe. His bio includes five-time heavyweight wrestling champ, movie star, Wimbledon and Pulitzer Prize winner, baseball triple crown, and NBA player of the match. But at the awards ceremony, when he went to shake hands, he slipped, hit his head, and went home brain-damaged, burnt out, and thinking he's Elvis. His real name, Joey Balboa, is a nod to his Stallone-esque physiognomy, but how to account for his survival for over 4,000 years? The Xenogear's perfect works has a tongue-in-cheek retcon for this. Maybe we'll look at it another time. But we might note in passing that Joe is a wonderful representation of the trivializing of the heroic, which perfectly fits the Zeboim culture's demise. And the big man himself is, as well as being in Kislev, holed up here in a cafe where the flight theme plays, surrounded by treasure boxes that auto-refill full of random goods. And he runs the only shop in the game selling the stat-boosting drive and the ultimate equipment for gears. These are correspondingly pricey, but equipping even one or two of your characters with an Omega engine and the GNRS output boosting part will make the final dungeon and bosses a cinch. Despite the low fuel, and maybe this is the meaning of the Yggdrasil engineer's comment that Xenogears doesn't seem to need fuel at all, regular attacks will deal thousands of HP of damage, which can be cheaply augmented with a death blower to multiply that even further. With your speed shoes on, an Emeralda mowing down foes with an ether doubler, you'll end fights before ever needing to charge or restore frame HP again. Besides, the secret passageway that leads to Billy's ultimate weapon, the Godfather gun, presumably in the back room of the cannoli shop, there's another entryway it opens onto a news station recording studio. Remember Satan's camera Faye was supposed to borrow for the wedding? Upstairs, the consoles display grainy footage of the politicians of the day, including the Miang of that era. Ranks of soldiers, tanks, prototype gears under construction, fighter jets, missile silos, a saluting crowd, maybe the most dangerous of them all. Faye explains that there was a rise of demagogues and religious cults. Miang was determined to start over given the people's genetic deficiencies, all this leading to the breakdown of Zeboim civilization and the annihilation of the world in nuclear war. But along with that, in the midst of it, he mentions this was his own and Ellie's creation of Emeralda. You'll need her in your party for Zeboim to divulge its last secrets. The gateway to a stadium-looking building beyond the expanse of parking lots is inaccessible, 
Once again, Faye suggests going in a small entry point. It turns out a manhole cover here grants access to a subway system. In one of the cars, you'll pick up a Z charger. Not bad, considering the populace seems to have looted the groceries and cafes. It's yet another option for making your fuel supply effectively limitless. Resurfacing in a plaza, Faye and Emeralda look out over the balustrade and reminisce one more time. There's a light effect, like the music box, and with Emeralda's June mermaid theme playing throughout the flashback, we see a Christmas tree, a la Rockefeller Square, take on color and form, flood-lit, as do the ghostly figures of people and Faye as Kim and Ellie in her nurse outfit. It's the new year, and they're all in that delicate position of trying to enjoy the moment in the midst of an unfolding crisis, longing for normalcy, celebrating while knowing there's people dying whom their work hasn't been able to save. The scene shifts to an elegant restaurant with glass walls and flooring overlooking the city. Kim calls the government, the terrorists, and everyone in the restaurant fools, reiterating the backstory. And with a specificity this time, the child who died on his operating table, the patients without supplies to care for, and genetic damage that cuts off life at 30 years curtails reproduction. Ravine, a rebel group rather like Avalanche in Final Fantasy VII, had blown up a generator. But Ellie, in spite of all this, defends them and asks if she too is a fool. She learned that day that she has no chance of conceiving children. The ellipses with which Faye answers her transition us into a bedroom scene. Ellie's sprite is that of their last night together 6,000 years later wrapped in the sheets, while Kim, yet again, looks out over the city. The juxtaposition of a fish tank beside the bed and an easel with paints by the window complements the framing of the two of them, foregrounded against that mass of suffering humanity. He speaks of infertility as a spell, a curse, on them and on life itself. But unlike Krellion, who in his despair determines to create God. Kim and Ellie fashion Emeralda, their daughter, that combination of art and science which will preserve life in the deeps. The scene ends before what we know is about to happen, and Emeralda picks up the thread. The emphasis is on life, not sacrifice, this time. She says Krellian, too, called her the ultimate work of art. And she knows she's different from other women, an imitation. But as Faye as Kim, and as Ellie called her, she is a pure life, an angel, and she wants to prove them right. With that long-handed-down memory finally delivered, and the treasure which cannot be stolen playing, Emeralda feels her body grow hot and clings to Faye in an embrace. It's not romantic, though that erotic quality is near the surface. Instead, this seems rather meant to convey that proud, protective love of family, whether human or dolphin. A turquoise light shines and marks her maturation. Like Satan regaining his sword, 
the adolescent Chiseled Emeralda gets new battle animations as well as a major boost, not just in power, but in all stats with each level up. Her gear never gets the Omnigear treatment, but is plainly the angel of Ellie's hopes, buying them time and a powerhouse in the party that will rescue her. It's time for the tail end of this one last side quest. Along the lines of the spider web from Face House that you use to catch fish in Shavat, or the rock, paper, scissors, and other badges, or Midori's ring, which you can trade for items much later. And like the opening cutscene that is explained some 60 hours later, or like the music box, which finds its fulfillment only in the vocal reprise of the end credits, as we'll see. This final quest entails another item we picked up back at the start of the game. The mermaid tear from the guy in the bar of Lahan. He must have been that old lady in the stairwell's son. And though she won't be reunited with him, she sees in Emeralda a girl worthy of her motherly affection and advice. What was going to be a stone for Faye to give the girl of his choosing becomes in the space of a few lines a ring for Emeralda. Symbolic of her ocean treasure eyes and her purity. That old woman tells her not to get taken in by strange men. A good luck charm for a no good man like her son changes by this circuitous route and gets made by this famous designer and her craftsmanship into an ether boosting accessory for Emeralda. Its thematic complexity far outweighs its actual power. But then, we've never claimed Xenogears was the most tightly plotted or impeccably designed game. Just the most beautiful, quixotic, and thematically resonant, like this mermaid ring for a nanotech maiden. We'll wrap up our discussion next time. Thanks for listening.